The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Friday edition of PFT PM heading into week nine do a quick rip around the NFL, some of the news that has occurred since we did PFT Live this morning. I'm not going to do the full-blown game previews because we do them every Thursday now. MDS and I, after PFT Live, i got another hour that I spend in the studio while we do whatever tapings NBC may need. Chris Sims and I have done some college hockey intermission reports We will do our best bets, and we will do a preview of every game of the weekend. Quick two, three minutes, some information and analysis that may be helpful to you in a package that is quick to digest so you can move on with your day. This won't be as quick to digest because this is a longer form gig. Now, this message comes from our new friends at ondeck.com. And this goes out to small business owners who may need help managing cash flow, hiring employees, purchasing inventory, or upgrading office space. It can often be a challenge to get access to capital, and it can take a lot of time. Traditional banks lack the technology and the resources to understand what a small business owner needs, and they'd rather just deal with larger, more established businesses. So, on deck, complete and total commitment to small business owners with fast, easy, tailored financing. You can get funding in as fast as 24 hours. With term loans up to $500,000 and lines of credit up to $100,000, none of which require business collateral. The application process is simple, and it won't impact your personal credit. There's been a study by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that it takes 33 hours on average to apply for a loan with a traditional lender. OnDeck.com is focused on making the small business loan process much more efficient so business owners can focus on what they do best, taking care of their business. They have loaned over $10 billion to over 80,000 small businesses and OnDeck.com carries a 9 out of 10 rating on Trustpilot and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. If you're a small business owner and need access to capital, go to OnDeck.com slash PFT right now. As a listener to this podcast, you'll receive a free consultation with one of OnDeck.com's U.S.-based loan specialists. You can apply online or by phone and get approved in minutes. Go to OnDeck.com slash PFT. That's OnDeck.com slash PFT for your consultations now. Haven't had a guest in a while. Need to do a guest. Maybe get Mark Leibovich back, talk some football and some bonus content. No bonus content today. Eh, Maybe some bonus content today. And of course, bonus content is code for when I don't stick to football. They're still playing football in Buffalo, despite the quality of the team, specifically the quality of the quarterback play. I see that Derek Anderson is questionable. He's in the concussion protocol. He's questionable. There's a chance he'll be cleared to play. I remember when the NFL first had its concussion epiphany. If you had a concussion, you missed a game. Now, you've got guys routinely being cleared to play the following week. And in Anderson's case, he suffered his concussion late in the Monday night game. He may be cleared to play. 
come Sunday. And that would be good news for the Bills because Josh Allen, still out. And Nathan Peterman, still not suited to be an NFL quarterback. And that's just kind of the way it is. The 49ers have a new problem. It's a good problem. They have a third-string quarterback who may be better than their number two quarterback, Nick Mullins, who was pretty much widely trashed on a knee-jerk basis just because nobody really knew who he was. He wasn't a rookie this year. He was undrafted last year out of Southern Miss. He broke all of Brett Favre's records, but he was still undrafted. And he was on the 49ers practice squad all of 2017 and was called up from the practice squad after the Jimmy Garoppolo injury earlier this year against the Chiefs. And now Mullins came in and got it done against the Raiders on Thursday night. I don't need to decide yet, so I'm taking my time, Kyle Shanahan said Friday, as to whether or not it's going to be Nick Mullins or C.J. Beathard when the 49ers conclude week 10 on Monday Night Football against the Giants. And although it's a far cry from that 1990 epic Monday Night Giants 49ers game, it's a little more intriguing now because I want to see if Nick Mullins can do it again. Khalil Mack still questionable for the Bears with that ankle injury. He didn't play last weekend. And I still look at that handling of Khalil Mack by the Raiders as the moment that everything went off the rails for John Gruden in Oakland. That's when it all started. And it was all avoidable. John Gruden made a gross miscalculation of what it would take to sign Khalil Mack to a long-term contract. He was offered an amount that was regarded as being not good enough for Mac, and Mac played it out, and Mac held out. And once Aaron Donald got his contract, it became painfully obvious that the Raiders were not going to be able to placate Khalil Mack, and they traded him the next day. I mean, it was, in hindsight, amazing. It was amazing as it was happening. Aaron Donald signs one day, and the next day Khalil Mack is traded, and signs a long-term contract worth more than Donald's. Now, the Bears currently not getting anything out of Mac, but the Raiders never will again, barring some strange twist of fate where he gets traded back to the Raiders. I can't rule out anything. It's just so odd what's going on with the Raiders. Somebody was arguing today that, I think it was Stephen A. Smith, as I was waiting for Hugh Jackson on first take. Stephen A. Smith was arguing that Mark Davis hired... John Gruden to essentially be the pincushion to take the criticism that was being directed to Mark Davis. Here's the thing, though. There was no criticism being directed to Mark Davis. 2016 was a year of resurgence for the Raiders. They made it to the playoffs. Derek Carr was an MVP candidate. And then last year, it all started to fall apart. And after the season, out goes Jack Del Rio. In comes John Gruden. And I don't know whether the game has passed Gruden by. I said this week on PSTFT Live, it's like riding a bike for a long time and then watching someone else ride a bike and thinking you can just jump right back on the bike and off you go at a high level, like Tour de France level, just because you've been a commentator for the Tour de France, that you can ride it again. 
and I don't know if it's a coaching issue. I don't know if it's a management slash leadership issue. I don't know if it's a personnel issue. And what's coming back into focus is the manner in which the Buccaneers disintegrated after they had a championship caliber team that had one of the best defenses in league history. John Gruden arrives and puts his foot into the ass of the offense. The two sides come together. They get lucky to face the Raiders in the Super Bowl, a Raiders team that still was doing a lot of the things that John Gruden had coached, using a lot of the same audibles. It was so bad that Tim Brown, during Super Bowl week several years ago, argued that Bill Callahan, who had taken over as the Raiders head coach, threw the game as a favor to John Gruden. That's how glaring it was that the Buccaneers knew exactly what the Raiders were doing. So that was the high watermark for Gruden in Tampa, and it just went downhill after that. And it's starting in that same spot. Worse than that. They're 1-7 and seven right now. How many games are they going to win this year? And it really does feel like guys are quitting. And it feels like guys are fed up. And the message that Gruden keeps sending, that there are so many of these other players out there that are dying to play for the Raiders, that's a slap at the guys who are there. Now, Chris Sims has a theory that he shared with me today. He thinks that that's not really happening, that Gruden is just saying that in order to help give the Raiders a better perception, a better image. I don't know how smart it is to admit to tampering in order to boost the manner in which your team is perceived. And wouldn't it be funny if the NFL investigates this and the end result is they have no evidence because it's all lies. There's no text messages. There's no emails. There's no evidence of any kind that anyone who is playing for another team reached out to John Gruden to say, hey, I really want to play for the Raiders. Now, once they're in Las Vegas, no state income tax, you know, there may be some guys that really want to play in Las Vegas, but I don't know if that's really want to play for the Raiders. And the point I made last night as that debacle was unfolding You think Las Vegas still wants the Raiders? You think they'd rather have the Chargers right now? I'd rather have the Chargers than the Raiders right now. I don't know what they're going to do at quarterback after Phillip Rivers, but right now, I'd rather have the Chargers in my town than the Raiders. Cowboys putting Gil Brandt in the ring of honor. He's going to make it into the Hall of Fame, presumably. He's in that contributor category where the hardest part is being the finalist. The easy part is getting enough votes, unless you're Paul Tagliabue. For the most part, the voters honor the work of the committees that put up the senior committee and contributor committee candidates. Jimmy Johnson's still not in, right? Jimmy Johnson should be in. I think the whole thing is tarnished until Jimmy Johnson gets in. I mentioned Hugh Jackson a moment ago. Here's what Hugh Jackson is doing. He had that lengthy interview with Mary Kay Cabot, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And then he was on first take for at least like the first hour of the show. It was weird. They said he's going to be on throughout the show. And maybe he came back later. He exited and they started talking about basketball. And that's when click onto something else. But Hugh Jackson is trying to rewind the clock back to that January that resulted in him taking the Browns job. Because he was in demand then. Now, I don't know how much of that was driven by friends, or should I say friend, in the media. 
But there was a buzz about Hugh Jackson. He had built himself up after being fired by the Raiders to conclude the 2011 season. He had built himself back up, working various jobs at the Cincinnati Bengals, ultimately returning to the position of offensive coordinator there, into an A-list candidate. And he chose the Browns after he had interviewed with the 49ers, before interviewing with the Giants. The Giants wanted to interview him, and instead of flying to New York, he took the job in Cleveland. I think he just, he wants to be able to say, hey, I'm the same guy that I was before I accepted a job with the Browns. So if I'm that same guy, and I was in demand by multiple different programs to be a head coach, then... I should be able to be a head coach again. Now, he's not so delusional that he thinks he could step right back into a head coaching job. He wants to go back and be a coordinator and reestablish that he is the guy that he was. But you can't just expunge your record, right? This isn't like a kid who gets in trouble, and if he stays out of trouble for a year or two, it's like it never happened, and the record gets expunged. This doesn't get expunged. 336-1 is permanent. 11-44-1 stays that way until you become another head coach. And until you become another head coach, 11-44-1 is something that you have to overcome. And I don't think he can. What owner in his or her right mind would hire Hugh Jackson? Because in addition to performance, or lack thereof, there was discord, and there is now this effort that is inherently clumsy. I don't think there's anything he can say at this point. His best play is to say nothing. I don't know if this is something he's decided is the right thing to do, if his agents are telling him it's the right thing to do. And ESPN did a nice job of putting him in a corner on the question of why he needed to go to ownership to get permission to fire Todd Haley or at least take the offense back from Todd Haley if Hugh Jackson is the one who exercised full autonomy in coming to the conclusion that Todd Haley should be hired in the first place. See, no one believes that. The belief is that John Dorsey, the GM of the team, essentially said to Hugh, look, you're either going to hire an offensive coordinator or I'm going to hire a coach. You decide. And it'll be your decision. But you just need to know what the alternatives are. So you decide whether or not you want to hire an offensive coordinator. I mean, stuff like that happens all the time. A decision gets made, and it's couched as one specific person's decision so as not to undermine that person. But the mere presence of Todd Haley undermined Hugh Jackson. He handed over the entire offense. What? When has that ever happened? That a head coach who is an expert in one side of the ball and it's always either defensive or offensive. Rarely special team. Very rarely. Very, very, very rarely. Much more rare than it should be. But usually it's offense or defense. When has there been a head coach who has struggled and who has hired someone to be the coordinator on the side of the ball on which that coach is an expert and then delegated everything to him. Now, when Mike Tomlin became the Steelers head coach as a Tampa 2 expert, he stepped in with that 3-4 Blitzberg scheme and Dick LeBeau, and we're just going to let it keep going the way it is. 
that doesn't mean Dick LeBeau had full autonomy. I'm sure Mike Tomlin got up to speed on the 3-4 Blitzburg style of zone defense and everything they did there in Pittsburgh in 2007 and helped make it better. The idea that Hugh Jackson just gave the keys to Todd Haley, I mean, think about that. It's like a race car driver who establishes himself his whole career as driving a race car, and that's what he does, and he drives a race car, and he's a great race car driver, and finally he, and he owns the team, or he, whatever else they do, crew chief, I don't know. He's got some other role, but he's also the driver. All of a sudden he says, ah, I've had enough driving. I'll keep doing this other thing. I'll keep owning the team, but I'll give it to you. I'm done driving. Not because I can't anymore. I'm too old for it. I'm just, you know, I'm just, I choose not to do it. It's just bizarre that it happened. And the effort to, to couch it as something other than it was is bizarre now. And there are only 32 of these jobs. See, that's what works against him. If there were 64 of them, it'd be different. If there were 44 of them, it would be different. If there were 34 of them, that wouldn't be different. There are only 32 of these jobs. Once you have been stained, permanently stained, the scarlet letter is on your forehead. The scarlet numerals of 0-16, just like Rod Marinelli. It's a position I've taken ever since the Browns finished last season 0-16. If you go 0-16 as an NFL head coach, you should never be an NFL head coach again. And yeah, and it's not, oh, you don't like Hugh Jackson. What's wrong with you? Is this personal? What did Hugh Jackson do to you? What did he do to you? Isn't that the laziest, most obvious explanation whenever someone has a critique of someone? This is a fair critique of Hugh Jackson's head coaching skills. He should do what Wade Phillips and Norv Turner eventually did, which is accept the fact that they are not ever going to be successful head coaches and embrace what they do well and do that. Wouldn't it be... Like... I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, obviously, as evidenced by the fact that I'm not really saying anything right now. Wouldn't he be happy to never be a head coach again? I know every football coach is wired to be the guy, and I think he puts a lot of his own identity and sense of his self-esteem and his worth and value in being in charge. I mean, just the way he handled that disagreement with Todd Haley and Hard Knocks, and they didn't have a conversation. Todd Haley had a view, Hugh Jackson disagreed, and the resolution was rock, scissors, paper. I win. I think he desperately wants to be a head coach because he likes being a head coach. He likes being in charge, even if he's not suited to be in charge. I would think that it is liberating. If you're doing a job that you just can't do, if you're a surgeon and you're 336 and 1 when it comes to your patient living, I think you would probably feel relieved to no longer be cutting into bodies and just go back to being another type of doctor. Not quite the surgeon, but the one who, I don't know, reads the x-rays, studies the MRIs comes up with the plan for surgery, but doesn't actually execute it. Go back and do that. Because he's good at it. 
See, that's what makes him comparable to North Turner and Wade Phillips. So good at it that they continued to bubble back up into the range of coaches eligible to be considered to be head coaches. And what did it take? Three times each for Turner and Phillips? Now, if any of them had ever gone 0-16, no more times. Rod Marinelli, 0-16 in one head coaching job. That was it. No more. And, you know, here's the thing. People can say that's a harsh take and it's not fair. Well, wait a minute. It's based on ample evidence. And secondly, if you give Hugh Jackson another NFL head coaching job, you are depriving someone else who never went 0-16, who never was 336-1, who doesn't have a career-winning percentage of 205, so bad that it would be 54 years, is that what it was, of winless seasons for Bill Belichick to match a 205 career-winning percentage? So how about let's prop up someone else who's never gone 0-16, whose career head coaching record is 0-0. I'd rather hire Eric Biennemi over Hugh Jackson. Now, like other offensive coordinators who make the climb to head coach, there's a question of whether or not the skill set is there to become the head coach, and the proof will be in the pudding. But I'd rather go with somebody who's 0-0, who has shown promise to be able to figure it all out, than somebody who has shown consistently that he can't. It's that simple. It really is. And I take no delight in the fact that Hugh Jackson got fired. But the bottom line is there are only 32 of these jobs and 32 people in the world will hold them. And once there is enough evidence to come to the conclusion that a human being is not suited to hold that job, then it goes to someone else and someone else gets the, the opportunity gets the status, gets the pay that goes along with it. At one point during his visit on first take, after Hugh Jackson made it clear that he wants to be a head coach again, he basically said whatever God has in store. Well, you know what? Maybe God has in store for someone else who wasn't 336-1 and to be a head coach. Maybe that's the plan. And the best play for Hugh Jackson is just be a coordinator. Be an assistant coach. Be what you are good at. Isn't that a lesson that would be very well delivered to anyone else. Try to be something more than you're capable of being. Be happy with your skills and abilities that are leading you to success. Find the thing that you do well and do it. And if that thing that you do well creates potential opportunities to do something else that maybe you can't do well, I mean, sure, if you want to try to go outside of your comfort zone, and see how it goes, and develop some new skills. I admire that. I can get behind that. Hell, I never would have done radio. I never would have done TV. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't get beyond my comfort zone of banging out blurbs on a website. But once you know it's not working, you got to look yourself in the mirror and say, I have to take a step back here. No matter what it means to my own view of my worth, my value, success, or failure, it's okay to fail. It's okay. As long as you realize 
it's time to stop doing the thing that you are failing at. All right, like I said, no reason to do a full week nine preview. All of that is available at profootballtalk.com. You will see the videos in the posts. I'm scrolling down through Twitter now to find the tweet that I posted earlier today with the kiss gif. See, I think I'm going to change it up at least for a while. I typically use a bat signal or Batman gif to send out the word that it's time for the PFTPM posse to give me questions. But now that I have purchased my tickets for the 19th annual Kiss Farewell Tour, and I saw them on Good Morning America with Michael Strahan, and man, that was just wild. To see them in full regalia when Gene Simmons is going to turn 70 during this tour. But as they explained it, they did the farewell tour. And they they don't want to acknowledge Peter, Chris, and Ace Frehley, half of the band that was part of the original lineup. Here's how the arc went for KISS, for any of you who care and or don't already know the story. KISS was a band that was formed in 1974-ish. And one of the things about KISS that resonates into what I have done with my business at ProFootballTalk.com and the way that we do it, I remember hearing Paul Stanley, the guy with the one star, the non-symmetrical member of KISS, saying that they decided to create the show that they would go to see, that they would pay their money to see. They made that show. That was their guiding principle. Let's make a show that we would want to see. And I remembered that when it was time to craft and create PFT and what are we going to cover? You know, there are a lot of people in the media, sports and otherwise, who believe it's their mission to tell you things that they think you should know, give you what you should want. My approach has always been give you what you want. And I've made that determination by being true to what I would want if it were me. It's kind of simple when you think about it. I think it's very easy to get off of that guiding principle because we overcomplicate things and we get intimidated by things and we're not quite sure how to be successful at something. Whatever line of work it is. And this applies to goods or services. Make something that you would buy. Provide a service that you would use and do it in a way that would make it the specific provider that you frequent. It's that simple. So anyway, they got together in the early 70s. They put together the show that they would pay to go see. And it was Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Peter Chris, Ace Frehley, wildly successful. And I remember the first time I ever saw them. It was on the Paul Lind Halloween special. I was blown away. I was mesmerized. Not long after that, I got Kiss Alive. And that was the album that really caused them to become superstar entertainers in the 70s. And you became part of this broader consciousness of the fan base. Like 
you were invested in them. You wanted them to do well. If they did well, you did well. If they did poorly, you did poorly. And you tied yourself to that. There was just something about it. There was this sense that they cultivated of them against the world. And I don't know if it happened organically, deliberately, or whatever, but it just kind of drew you in. It was this weird, strange group of KISS fans. Almost like, you know, if you go somewhere and you're a Bears fan and you're running to another Bears fan, it's that shared common existence where we get it and no one else does. And it was that way in the 70s. And it was fascinating, the fire and the explosions and the, the music was, you know, I don't know. People all, that was always the knee-jerk criticism. Well, the music isn't any good. Well, you know what? It's good enough for me. That was always my, <laughs> I mean, oh, you may not like it, or that may be the way that you act out your resentment of this group that is making millions and has fans all the way around the globe and does something different than anything anyone else has ever done. I like the music. And now that I got the tickets to go see him play, I guarantee you it's going to be time to fire up the phone. I, I don't even, like, I've got some of the old albums, and I, maybe I need to get a turntable. That's been, you know, that's kind of like the cool thing to do now. That would be a little nostalgic, the crackle and the popping. But I'm just looking through my library here on my cell phone device. I've got, I've got Kiss Alive 2, Kiss Alive, the original Kiss album, Rock and Roll Over. One of the great album covers of all time. I may have to supplement my, my Kiss collection. And actually, if you think they're bad musicians. Now, you know, I think... Paul Stanley's voice has kind of been shot. I saw that they were on Jimmy Fallon the other night and they sang Love Gun. Very subtle album title from the late 70s. And it sounds like there's some enhancement through the microphone, but that's fine. I'll suspend disbelief. I don't care. I remember when and and I keep getting off track of the history of Kiss. At some point in the early 80s, they decided to ditch the makeup, not because of any reason other than it was time for a change and what they had done had petered out. So they became Kiss without all the makeup and and they stayed that way until 1996. And I remember when they were on the Grammys, they presented an award with Tupac Shakur and they came out in the full gear and I said, that's the precursor to a reunion because Peter, Chris, and Ace Frehley had left the band years before that. They're going to get back together. They're going to go out on tour, and I will go see them. And I remember in 1996, the summer that my son was eventually born, I remember going with a friend of mine in Pittsburgh to see him play. And, and it was such a hot ticket that they added a second night in Pittsburgh. And I remember the next night feeling like I should be back there again because it was like 20 years had disappeared in the snap of a finger, and it was great. And it was something... You know, I talked about this earlier in the week that, you know, you feel like days that are gone forever and you're never going to get them back again. Going to that show in 1996 felt like going right back to 1978. And it was neat to blend 96 and 78 because you're two different people. When you're 13 years old in 1978 and you see them in Pittsburgh and then you're a fully grown man with a wife and a child on the way, your life has changed. My mother had passed. My dad was still around, but not for much longer. And it was a great pullback to the days of growing up. And that was memorable, very memorable. And so 
I don't know, 96. I saw him again in 98 a couple of times. I saw him a couple of times in 97 when they were really milking the cow for every ounce they could get. And so be it. I'm a capitalist. They're capitalists. I, I think I saw him like five or six times between 96 and their first fell war tour. I'm finally back to my point. And I know none of you really care about this, but what the hell? Their first farewell tour was 2000-ish, and it really ended up being the farewell for the four original band members because they realized after a few years back together with Peter, Chris, and Ace Frehley why they got rid of those guys in the first place. So they got rid of them, they retooled it, and I've resisted going back since then, and, and they've toured, and they were within you know reasonable driving distance a few years ago, and I wanted to go see them. They were going to be like in Youngstown. Ohio. You know, they do these tours where they fill big arenas, and then when they know that they're not going to be able to fill big arenas for whatever reason, then they reduce down, and they tour wherever they can, and they've been touring and touring. I don't know when they last had an album. It may have been Psycho Circus 20 years ago. They, they don't do a lot of original content. They just have their show. They have their songs. They go play, and people love it. But... I saw a couple of months ago, or just a couple of weeks ago, really. It's all kind of falling together quickly. They're doing this end of the road. The, the, the ultimate farewell tour. The 19th annual farewell tour. But they really do mean it this time. And with Gene Simmons about to turn 70 and Paul Stanley's not far behind. Here's what I thought they would always do. I thought they would find younger versions of themselves who would essentially be the ultimate KISS tribute band who would become the new members, just like they did with half of the band. They did it with Peter Chris. And Ace Frehley, they replaced them with two guys, Eric Singer and Tommy Thayer. I just assumed at some point they would find another Gene Simmons and another Paul Stanley. And I still think they will. But if you know that's coming, this final farewell tour doesn't feel like such a big deal. This is farewell to, I think, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. And I think as this unfolds, there will be a new Gene Simmons, a new Paul Stanley, and maybe just new across the board. All four new members in their mid-20s like they were in 1974, and it just goes from there. And eventually, you know, it'll be something that is run by the estates of Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, and there'll be somebody who's in charge of the organization, and KISS will just be this, almost like the Blue Man Group or Cirque du Soleil, this traveling show that every once in a while puts together a world tour and people can experience, as long as you can find people who can play and sing and move like they always did you can keep this going and i think that's what's going to happen all right enough of that my god talk about football you idiot i'm scrolling down to the kiss gif here it is oh boy a lot of questions today all right let's get right to them what do we have here a red zone out no time to conjure up a question today it's 7 15 p.m here in the uk and i'm off to the pub with my guys have a great weekend have a great weekend tom marshall aka a red zone out always been a great contributor to pft live and the pft pm posse all right looking for questions pft pm posse how many undefeated teams have made a major trade without suffering a major injury refreshing to see the rams play and operate like this and i'm becoming a fan even living in texas won't help their attendance problems I don't know how big of a trade it is to get Dante Fowler Jr. I think they regret trading Robert Quinn and they feel like they need someone who can beef up the pass rush because that's the only glaring weakness on the team. That the mere presence of a couple of great inside defensive tackles isn't enough to just unlock 
a potentially dominant pass rush on the outside. You would think that when you have Aaron Donald and Adama Kinsu, and I think Sue hasn't been as good as they thought he was going to be, and he won't be back next year. But when you have those two guys in the middle, you're going to have guys who have single opportunity on the outside against a tackle to try to get around them. The reality is tackles are pretty good, and a lot of tackles can handle a guy one-on-one. And the Rams' pass rush on the outside has been handled pretty effectively. I don't know that Fowler falls into the category of a guy that's going to change that dramatically, but we'll see. I really do think they were attracted to him in part because he had two sacks in the AFC Championship game. They're looking for guys who are going to step up in the postseason. PFTPM Posse says, it's Friday, I'm happy, you're happy, the whole PFTPM Posse is happy. So let's hear you sing your favorite verse of a Kiss song and do it in full Kiss character. Well, first of all, I do have a Gene Simmons mask here somewhere. And one year, my sister did the Peter Chris face paint uh, for Trick or Treat when I was like 12 or 13, right when I was all in the throes of it. But uh, yeah, no, uh, without uh, alcohol, there will be no singing of Kiss. Mark Wilson, a.k.a. at El Marco Lives. Imagine Jimmy G finally gets out of the shadow of the best sixth-round pick ever, and he lands at the feet of the best undrafted quarterback ever, or am I jumping the gun on Nick Mullins? I'd say you're jumping the gun a little bit. And the best undrafted quarterback of all time is Kurt Warner. So, no, Johnny Unitas. I think it's Johnny Unitas. I think Johnny Unitas was undrafted. Johnny Unitas was cut by the Steelers, and he was playing for the Bloomfield Rams, a semi-pro team, before the Colts found him. That's going to be, you know, we don't talk about that much now because it was years ago and the game has evolved and the game has changed. But John Unitas is the one quarterback of yesteryear that I'd love to see how he would fare today because I think he would be every bit as good, if not better than the best quarterbacks we see today. The Real 4-0, do you really think this is the final tour of KISS? As I said, this is the final tour of this lineup. I think they'll be back with new members. At the real Forno, can you take us behind the curtain with the prank that you and the other guy pulled on Sims? This is a reference to something they did at Bleacher Report, the Sims and Lefko show. For their Halloween edition, they pranked Chris Sims by creating a PFT headline and story that was phony that OBJ had been traded to the Texans. And, and Sims who was dressed up as Maverick from Top Gun, but really looked like Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. I mean, that pasty-faced Sims, you don't realize how pasty he is until he has a black wig on his head and these cockeyed glasses. It was comical. It was comical. But I have no idea. I had no involvement in it. I just saw it online like everyone else. So uh, I have no idea how they did it. And uh, I I thought it was hilarious. Oh, what else do we have here? Man, it's more it's a lot of cross talk by the members of the PFTPM posse. How about how about less conversation and more questions, guys? Trevor Carr, can you explain what's going on with the ref that was fired midseason for performance-based reasons? Is there something in the ref CBA that prevents midseason firings? Don't they have a grading system and all that that should be taken care of in the offseason? Well, that's how it typically happens. And You know, what will occur is the NFL Referees Association will file a grievance and they will argue that this is beyond the the manner in which things have been done. This is a violation of the CBA. It's a violation of the pattern and practices, yada, yada. And that that Hugo Cruz should not have been fired and he should be reinstated. But play that out. What if he gets reinstated? Do you really want to be the guy who got reinstated? Because people will know they'll be on the lookout. 
They'll have to give Hugo Cruz a new number and maybe have him wear a Gene Simmons mask. Because if Cruz comes back, I mean, no, it's not just going to be an eagle-eyed fan who spots Hugo Cruz. It's going to be somebody writing that Hugo Cruz is on this crew and that crew is working the Lions-Bears game this weekend. And Hugo Cruz will be the side judge. And it's not, I, if I'm Hugo Cruz, I don't want that job back. It's one thing to fight it for principle. I think you fight it for principle and maybe you'll win and you get reinstated and then you negotiate a severance package with the NFL because they won't want you back. For as much as you don't want to go back, they don't want you back. That was why when I was practicing law and representing individuals who had been fired, it took me a while to learn that one of the best things you can do and one of the things I started to screen clients for, I wanted people who could look me in the eye and tell me truthfully, or at least in a way that I believed was truthful, because some people are good liars. I, I, I thought I was pretty good at spotting them. I wanted someone to be able to truthfully tell me that they would take their job back if it was offered. Not everybody can. Not everybody can. But that's the best play. Because if your end result of exercising your legal rights is someone bangs a gavel and says, you take your job back. That's when the employer says, oh, what's it going to take to get you to give up your right to reinstatement? And I think that could be Hugo Cruz's best weapon against the NFL. Win the right to reinstatement, say, I'm ready to show up. Just tell me where to go. And eventually the NFL says, uh, we'd like to work this out. What else do we have here? PFTPM Posse, how great would it be if Jerry Jones handed full control of the team to his son, Steven, only for Steven's first move to be firing his dad as GM. I think that would be epic and could even see Jerry ordering it at the end of the year, ever so valuable publicity for him. I, yeah, I, even if full control goes to Steven, he can still be disinherited, right? They can still change the documents, the wills and the trusts and all the other legal documents that determine how a billionaire's estate's going to be carved up. So you fire Jerry and then, and then your sister or your brother or someone else ends up running the team. So that's not going to happen. Talk Chicken asks, who's the most meaningless GM in the league? My vote goes to Reggie McKenzie of the Raiders. Gruden is calling the shots and Reggie is just around to have someone to blame when something goes wrong. Look, there are General managers in name, there are people who are called like VP of player personnel who really don't have any authority. And every team has a different approach. In some teams, there is a strong GM who supervises and hires and manages the coach and picks the players and the coach works with the GM and works for the GM. In other cities, the coach is in charge and the VP of player personnel or the GM is there to just set the table for what the coach wants. And... Uh, you know, in some cities, it's equal and shared accountability. And that's what needs to be the, the best approach is you have a GM and a coach who are tied at the hip and either they both succeed or they both fail. There's no way that the end result of a horrible season or two is going to be one guy stays and one guy goes. But to answer the question, I don't know, right now, Reggie McKenzie has gone from being the guy who was in charge to being the table setter. See, that's the dynamic I point out with John Dorsey in Cleveland. See, Reggie McKenzie got John Gruden. Not that Reggie McKenzie was looking for a new coach. Reggie McKenzie was happy with Jack Del Rio. Mark Davis wanted John Gruden. And when John Gruden arrives, Reggie McKenzie suddenly has less juice than he used to have. 
if John Dorsey gets Nick Saban, Jim Harbaugh, and I'm just throwing out names just as a for instance, if Bill Belichick would decide he'd like to leave the Patriots and be the Browns head coach, and if the Patriots would accept whatever first-round picks would be necessary to make it happen, not that they ever would, not that Belichick would ever do it, but that's the kind of coach who walks through the door and says, all right, John, uh, pack your things and leave. I mentioned this at one point, I think either during PFT Live or PFT PM this week, that I remember when Bill Cowher was being courted by the Jets, but he did not want to have to keep Mike Tannenbaum as the GM. And that was, from the Jets' perspective, a non-starter. So they didn't get Bill Cowher. He would have come back if they would have just said to Mike Tannenbaum, see you later. So I think Reggie McKenzie eventually is going to say, see you later. And maybe they just want him to quit so they don't have to buy him out. But Reggie McKenzie has got to be beside himself that John Gruden has torn down everything that McKenzie built. McKenzie built a playoff contender, and Gruden has torn it down. And Gruden intends to continue to tear it down with all these guys out there who are dying to play for the Raiders. And I think it's just a matter of time before Reggie McKenzie is gone. Brady asks, have you ever seen a better quarterback debut than Nick Mullins last night where they perform equally against the Giants next week? I... I'm sure that there have been other quarterbacks who in their first game have blown us away. I haven't really thought about it. haven't researched it. Now, Clint Longley, I remember that was the ultimate guy who nobody knew who came in when Roger Staubach got injured during the Washington Thanksgiving game, 1974-ish. Clint, and Clint Longley looked just like Kenny Powers. And, uh, you know, there have been guys that that we didn't know who they were who have come in and played and it was like holy shit this guy can play but Nick Mullins Nate Mullins at one point yesterday Chris was calling him Nate and you know what I mean I feel bad I I don't but should we have seen it coming the guy was on the practice squad all last year he was on the practice squad until Jimmy Garoppolo blew out his ACL if anyone else out there thought Nick Mullins could get it done he would have been gobbled up off of the practice squad and given a spot on an active roster but Nick Mullins, to his credit, got it done. And we'll see if he gets it done next week if he plays for the 49ers against the Giants. But I'm kind of stumped here as to other guys who have. T- tweet us at Pro Football Talk on Twitter if you can think of others who have come in and instantly had that big game and people were like, oh my gosh, this guy's great. I know it's happened. Usually it's a back, usually it's a number two guy. I think what makes this one even more amazing is it wasn't the number two guy. It's the number three guy who gets the chance to play. That's what's so fascinating. And it was very impressive. And I don't know whether it was Mullins getting it done or just the Raiders being done. Sergio D, could Greg Williams have been offered four head coaching roles in the middle of a season following the axing of a coach? I, yeah, I, I still don't know what Greg Williams was talking about when he said that he's been asked to interview 11 times and four times he was offered a job without interviewing as a head coach. And then he had a chance to clarify it yesterday, and he just didn't. I don't know what he's getting at there. It's just weird to me. It's bizarre. But uh, uh, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. People are paying attention to Greg Williams' sound bites and press conferences, and people are wondering, is there something like wrong here? And my response is no. It's just the way he's always been. I still have been meaning to write, and I haven't gotten to it yet, something that really goes down the rabbit hole on all the reasons why I thought Greg Williams would never be a head coach again. And I never thought he'd be back in the NFL. I still need to write that. But uh, I'm surprised he became the interim head coach. I'm very surprised. And one person very knowledgeable about the workings of the league said maybe that 
tells you all you need to know about the Browns. The fact that Williams ended up being the interim head coach. Tyler Forness, a.k.a. The Real Forno, wants to know what are my top five NFL rivalries. Well, I would have to start with Raven Steelers, not just because they play this weekend, but I like that that vibe. I like that feel. And I also like Steelers-Bengals because there's a, a more of a, of a hatred there when it comes to those teams. I have always been a fan of Chiefs Raiders, although in recent years, really for the last 30 years, when one team is good, the other one isn't. Cowboys-Washington, in my mind, was the original NFL rivalry. That was the one that got my attention. Oh, and they play again this year on Thanksgiving. You know, Packers-Bears has always been regarded as a big rivalry. I don't see it that way. I don't know. I don't it I don't know why it's never really resonated for me like other rivalries. I liked 49ers Seahawks back when both teams were good. I think Panthers Saints, we talked about this today on PFT Live. Peter King really likes Panthers Saints and Panthers and Saints get together twice in 13 days to end the season. The Saints could be holding the one seed going into the final three weeks of the season, into the final 13 days of the season, and they could lose not just the one seed, they could lose the division, depending upon where the Panthers are going into those games. So let me rank these. Number one for me is Steelers-Ravens. Number two for me is Steelers-Bengals. Number three for me is Dallas-Washington. And it's almost like every permutation in the NFC East is a great rivalry, but for me it's still Dallas-Washington. The next one for me, Panthers-Saints. That's four. Number five for me, I don't know. There isn't really a number five that jumps off the page. There isn't really one where, man, when these two teams get together, anything can happen. I'm struggling to pick number five right now. Right now, number five, I think number five is open. And... You know, I'm tempted to say Saints-Falcons, but you know what? I'll say Saints-Falcons. You know why? Because they play on NBC two weeks from last night and Thanksgiving. Talk chicken. John Gruden is brilliant, right? The Raiders are going to stink on ice this year and land the first pick in the 2019 draft, at which point they will take Nick Bosa. So let's review. Gruden swapped Khalil Mack for Nick Bosa and rookie contract for the next five years, plus three first-round picks. Did he get three first-round picks for both? No, he didn't get three first-round picks. He swapped Khalil Mack for Nick Bosa and two first-round picks. But still, there may be something to that. Because you know, great pass rushers are hard to find. Stephen Wise, 89, does the emergence of Nick Mullins affect the Niners' ability to covertly tank in 2018 in anticipation of the draft? Yeah, last night was the Nick Bosa Bowl. Advantage Raiders. Unless the Raiders want a quarterback. I've always heard that John Gruden doesn't want to work with a young quarterback, right? Is he going to want to work with a guy who's drafted right out of school? Or is he going to want to go like sign a Ryan Fitzpatrick and make him the new Rich Gannon? I think it's more likely he looks for an established guy who will drive that Ferrari. Remember the Chris Sims explanation? They want, Gruden wants a quarterback to drive that Ferrari and not scratch it. Recliner QB, how likely is it the Eagles' interest in Amari Cooper was fabricated by them to drive the price higher for the Cowboys and make it easier and cheaper to get them Tate all along? I don't know that it makes it easier and cheaper to get Tate because I don't know that the Cowboys were going to go after Tate, but it's possible the Eagles threw their hat in the ring for a second rounder for Amari Cooper to drive up the price that ultimately was paid to the Raiders for 
uh, Cooper, that first-round pick. And I'm trying to think of the tentacles between the Eagles and the Raiders. John Gruden was once the offensive coordinator in Philadelphia, and maybe there's a Doug Peterson, Green Bay Packers thing there. Maybe there was a little, hey, help me out here. We can help each other. We can set that. We can set the Cowboys up. We can get the Cowboys. You know, that whole West Coast cabal, Doug Peterson, John Gruden, Andy Reid, the old Eagles connection for Gruden. What if there was a discussion that was had that the Eagles were going to offer a certain amount for Cooper just to get the Cowboys to pull the trigger on a first-round pick? And that hurts the Cowboys. They end up trading for a guy that maybe they shouldn't have wanted. They give up a first-round pick. That helps the Eagles. It helps the Raiders. I kind of like that theory. Colonel Kevin, do you think Adam Gase's defense of Ryan Tannehill is actually genuine, or is he just the kind of guy that supports his guy 100% until he doesn't? I I feel like it's genuine. I feel like it's genuine. But also, I feel like at some point, Adam Gase has to realize that a franchise quarterback is going to either declare himself a franchise quarterback, or you have to find another franchise quarterback. And with so many young guys coming into the NFL now and performing well right out of the gates... Gase has to admit that it's just not Tannehill. See, I think the fear is if you give up on Tannehill, he goes somewhere else and becomes a franchise quarterback. But I posed this question back in August, and Buccaneers fans got pissed at me. I said, if you cut Jameis Winston right now, no one would immediately make him the starter on another team. Meaning every other team had a plan in place that they would not turn upside down if... Jameis Winston was suddenly available to be signed by anyone. And, well, obviously, if it happened now, there would not be a land rush for Jameis Winston. I think if Ryan Tannehill were cut right now, and if he were healthy, there would not be a land rush for Ryan Tannehill. I think the Dolphins had better move on from Tannehill. If Gase even survives after this year, if he survives after this year, he had better move on from Tannehill. And I put Gase... And I was on WQAM today with Joe Rose and Zach Krantz, and, and, and they thought that I was emphasizing that I really do know something by going over the top and insisting I don't know anything, but I really don't know anything. I really don't. But I've got, and let, let, me, let me come up with the full universe of guys who I think the Browns may try to trade for to become their head coach in 2019 and work with Baker Mayfield. John Harbaugh, I think, would be a possibility. And here's how you end up in this category. You're a guy that maybe is going to get fired by your current team. Your current team really doesn't know what to do. And, you know, we don't want to pay the buyout. We're not sure we want to get rid of him. We don't know who else we would get. You bring along the Browns and they say, I'll give you X for your guy. That pushes the needle towards saying, all right, see you later. We're going to get rid of this guy anyway. That for, it's, a t- it's for a team that's on the fence. The Browns' interest is the thing that pushes them on the let's move on side of the fence. I mean, I don't see a team that loves its head coach. Like, you know, this Sean McVay nonsense that popped up this week because one of the offshore gambling sites made him the favorite, which is just asinine. And then they republished their odds and he wasn't on there to be seen anywhere. Not even as the longest of the long shots. Right? But, you know, the Rams aren't going to give up Sean McVay unless there's some dysfunction that we have no idea is going on behind the scenes. Unless they've come to him and said, hey, Sean, we love what you're doing, but we're never going to pay you more than $3 million a year. Here here are the teams, and I meant to do this because I mentioned when kind of spitballing on this concept with 
with Joe Rose and Zach Krantz that Adam Gase is a name to watch, John Harbaugh is a name to watch, and Mike McCarthy is a name to watch. Those are three guys who may have tenuous status with their current teams, and maybe their current teams decide to keep them for one more year, but along come the Browns, and the Browns offer something, and the next thing you know, the Browns are negotiating with one of these three guys to become their next head coach. Other guys that would fall into that category. Now, it has to be realistic. I I could say Doug Marone, that maybe the Jaguars would be receptive, but I don't know that the Browns would want Doug Marone. It's got to be an offensive guy that the Browns would want to primarily work with Baker Mayfield. Now, Harbaugh is the exception. I think Harbaugh, if Harbaugh gets fired, he's going to get snatched up instantly by someone. And, And maybe the Browns don't need to contact the Ravens. Maybe Harbaugh gets fired. You know, the season falls apart for Baltimore. They're four and four now. They end up six and ten, seven and nine. Harbaugh's out, and he and I think he would instantly be hired somewhere else. Uh, Gr- I'm looking at the I'm looking at the the grid of the 32 teams. Gruden, yeah, Gruden's not going to be the guy. Jason Garrett's not going to be the guy. Doug Peterson is set in Philly. He's not going to be the guy. Pat Shermer, uh, no, he's not going back to Cleveland. Although the Giants, I think, would gladly give him up for a conditional seventh round pick. Jay Gruden is not going to be Jay Gruden. Jay Gruden Jay, playoffs. Now that look, now Jay Gruden's not going to be the guy. I said Mike McCarthy. Uh, Matt, now of course Matt Nagy's not going anywhere. Mike Zimmer's not a, a an offensive coach. I don't think he'd go anywhere. Um, no one in the end. Oh, oh, you know, oh God, I don't want to go. Am I going to go there? Um, let me go ahead and go there. I'll go there. Wait, let me just check the NFC West to make sure that there isn't a fifth candidate. We already shot down McVeigh. Kyle Shanahan's not leaving San Francisco, is he? He he he. No, he wouldn't go back to to the Browns. He did not go well the year that he was the offensive coordinator. Pete Carroll's not an offensive guy. All right, so I I see four four candidates to summarize. Adam Gase of the Dolphins, John Harbaugh of the Ravens, Mike McCarthy of the Packers. And, you know, we haven't had one of these for a while because the Saints have been good the last two years. Remember every year there was a Sunday splash report that this could be Sean Payton's last year with the Saints. And there's never been... Any of the last two seasons. I think Sean Payton is a name to watch. Especially if the Saints would win the Super Bowl. Now by then, the Browns better have a damn good idea what they're going to do. They better have a head coach by then. Even if they don't win the Super Bowl. Drew Brees, if Drew Brees is done after this year, it's driven by quarterback. Period. For Sean Payton, if Drew Brees is done this year, Sean Payton's got a better chance of being successful as the coach of the Cleveland Browns. I said it. Unless he can get himself in position to draft a rookie, and he was all over Patrick Mahomes. He said that. It's one of the reasons the Chiefs moved to number 10 that year when the Saints were at number 11. I had in a story over the weekend, and I may have mentioned it on the podcast, that Drew Brees was in the draft room unexpectedly with guests and he had to be told hey by the way there's a chance we're going to draft a quarterback with our 11th overall pick in the draft once Breeze is gone 
what is tying Sean Payton to New Orleans? And I think anyone who has won a Super Bowl with one team is fascinated by the possibility of winning a Super Bowl with another team. Who's one of Sean Payton's biggest mentors? Bill Parcells. Parcells tried to do it. Never worked out. Got back to a Super Bowl with the Patriots, but didn't win it. What if Peyton looks at Baker Mayfield and says, you know what? This could be the opportunity. This could be the way to make it happen. This could be the way to become the first coach in NFL history to win Super Bowls with two different teams. John Harbaugh could fall into that same category. He could be the first guy. See, the, the, just look. Maybe there are other head coaches that also would be intrigued, but I think the four guys most likely to be intrigued by the Browns and most likely to be in a position where they can get to Cleveland would be Gase, Harbaugh, McCarthy, and Peyton. Fascinated by that. Also, don't rule out Josh McDaniels, although they wouldn't have to trade for McDaniels, but that's another guy who's almost kind of like a head coach, but we think he's he's, uh, waiting for the job in... New England, once Bill Belichick retires, if he ever does. All right, let me answer a couple more of these and get out of here. I'm sorry, I got down that rabbit hole. But I think I think that it's it's something to keep an eye on. I don't even know what the question was. Oh, it all started with Gase. The question about Gase and Tannehill. The real Forno is Gruden fooling most of us with his performance right now. Seems to me if you're going to rebuild, he's doing it the right way for the long term. Hey, go ahead and tank. I mean, what are they going to do, run you out of Oakland? Steven Anderson, what's your favorite Halloween candy? We got into a thing this week about the Getz's Caramel Creams. I love the Getz's Caramel Creams. It's a small little portion. It's very satisfying. Chewy caramel with that that little thing of that, like, hardened sugar in the middle. Yeah, I like the little Heath bars, too. I like any candy where the piece is so small that you feel like you can eat 100 of them and it really doesn't count. You kind of fool yourself. Ah, it's just a little piece of candy. I can have five of them. No big deal. I can have 10 of them. It's just a little piece of candy. Mike likes dirt. Is Panthers versus Saints in week 15 becoming a marquee matchup? Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. And there is another, I think there's another 49ers game on Sunday night football. Although after the way Nick Mullins played last night, who knows? Maybe it would not be flexed. Uh, Oh, week 15, that's a Monday night game, so it wouldn't be flexed anyway. The week that there is another 49ers game on Sunday night football is week 13, San Francisco at Seattle. Well, now that we're here, let's go ahead and see what other games may end up in that spot. You've got Minnesota at New England. I have a feeling that Fox has protected that one. That's the 425 game. There's there's a rule where you can protect a certain number. And even if they're protected, there's still this political stuff that goes on about whether or not a game is actually going to be moved. And ultimately, it's the NFL's decision. You like how I, I, how I got my way out of that potential mess? Carolina at Tampa Bay. Depends upon where the Bucks are at that point. That's not, that's not a marquee matchup. That's not a big market. I don't think that goes down there. Chicago and the Giants. I mean, Giants, big market. Chicago, playoff chase. But how exciting is that? Browns at Texans? No. Rams at Lions, maybe Rams at Lions, maybe Rams at Lions. You know, there's really not a game that jumps off the page. If Saints-Dallas wasn't the Thursday night game, which should be a pretty good Thursday night game, if that wasn't the Thursday night game, I'd say that one. But 
Yeah, there's a there's a flex dilemma for week 13. And I guarantee you Vikings Patriots is protected because Fox would have looked at this week and said there's really nothing else here. Chargers Steelers. Chargers Steelers. There it is. Steelers don't like primetime games because they don't get as many people showing up and it's kind of a, an annoyance and a hassle for the people in Pittsburgh, but could be Chargers Steelers. Now, how did I miss that when I looked up at it the first time? I think Chargers Steelers are the most likely to get slid and and probably not protected by uh by CBS. Stephen A, does Gronk play for another AFC team to give it to Bill Belichick next year? He was a huge Bills fan. I think Gronk's done. I have a feeling Gronk's done after this year. He's not the same guy. I don't know if it's a health thing, an age thing, cumulative effect of injuries. I just have a feeling he's done after this year. Just a feeling. I don't know anything. I just have a feeling he's done. And I think if they would have won the Super Bowl, he would have been done after last year. Dr. J144, would you hire Ben McAdoo as a head coach before Hugh Jackson due to your 0-16 disqualifying rule? No, I'd hire neither. Ben McAdoo or McAdoo is disqualified for a different reason. He's got the complete and total lack of self-awareness. From the giant suit to the slick back hair. And I don't want to be overly superficial here, but how you're perceived by others is a factor in whether and to what extent you can lead. And when you walk into a locker room with slick back hair looking like a, a goofy version of Gordon Gecko, and when you show up for your introductory press conference with a giant suit, I mean, think about that. They, they, oh, that's not fair. No, it is fair. Okay, the guy had a giant suit because he lost a lot of weight. So he shows up for the introductory press conference as the new coach of the New York Giants in the world's number one media market where appearance matters, where what you say matters less than how you look when you're saying it. And instead of saying, we need to postpone this by a day so I can go to J.C. Penney and buy a suit. And anything he would have purchased off the rack at J.C. Penney, at Men's Warehouse, anywhere, would have been better than the giant David Byrne stop making sense suit. You do that. Somebody close to you or you has to be the one to say, I can't go to the press conference dressed like this. I can't look like I am wearing a suit from the kangaroo collection. I can't do it. I mean, every once in a while, you'll see a guy wearing a suit, and the way it fits him, it looks like pajamas. This was beyond pajamas. This was a guy walking around in a sleeping bag. And you have one of 32 jobs, and there are certain basic requirements, and this applies to college head coaches too. You know, there have been college head coaches who are on the sidelines, and they got their heads set, and it's all screwed up, and they never look comfortable. You gotta, you got to exude, right? Certain people exude, you know? Like, there are certain guys in the military that just exude military. Certain cops, they just exude. Like, oh, all right, well, you don't have to tell me to, to like, walk away. I'm walking. I, I'm walking in the other direction, officer. I do not want to do anything that may get you to, uh, you know, uh, believe that I have violated any of the local ordinances or, uh, you know, statutes. And I think a head coach has to have that. And he doesn't have to look like a Marine that's going to come kick your ass, but I think there's a certain quality in how you present yourself and the slick back hair and the big suit. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to crap on Ben McAdoo today. He'll never be a head coach again. And Hugh Jackson will never be a head coach again. And, and if either guy ever gets hired to be a head coach again, the other three teams in the division where the team is that hires either of those guys will be thrilled, thrilled because you can't rule out that there will be 
you know, not at least one of 32 teams dysfunctional enough to do it. All right. Uh, I got to wrap this up. Josh Randall. Oh, great question, Josh. Let's end on this. This is an important question. Oh, I got, I got, I got two. I got two. First, Josh Randall wants to know what my favorite Kiss song is. You know, there really isn't one that stands out. I like different ones for different reasons. And Detroit Rock City, I like it, but it's not my favorite. Rock and Roll All Night, I like it, but it's not my favorite. There really isn't one that is just, this is the go-to Kiss song. I just, I can listen to any and all Kiss songs at any time. And actually, my favorite Kiss album, the one that I listen to more than any other at this point in my life, is the MTV Unplugged from 1995, which was the precursor. I mentioned earlier that when they when they showed up at the Grammys wearing their, their costumes, I knew they were going to get back together and do the tour in, in makeup. When they did the Unplugged thing and Peter, Chris, and Ace Frehley came back and you know, that's if you think they're crappy musicians and that the you know the electronics of the electric guitar and all the effects and that covers it up because really trust me you get the right pedals and amps and you turn it to the right level you you don't even have to be in the ballpark and it sounds right but with that MTV unplugged deal you know they had to be good with the acoustics and they were I mean that that that's probably my favorite album but there isn't a song that just hey this is this is the one Kiss song that I like. I will say this, and again, I like different songs for different reasons. I really like Deuce because that's typically how they open their show. I'm going to be very upset if when I see them the last time, because sometimes they'll open with Detroit Rock City, but there's something about opening the show with Deuce. Um, because the first time I saw them, that's how they opened the show, and they went for a long time opening the show with Deuce, and, and that's like a song off their first album. I have a feeling that's what they're going to open the, the show with, because they when they were on Good Morning America, there was a little kid dressed up like Gene Simmons who asked Gene Simmons what his favorite Kiss album is, and he said it's Kiss because that was the first one. That was the moment where the dream was starting to come to reality, and he went and bought the album in 1974, and he said, this, this is me. This is happening. And Deuce is, I think Deuce is one of the first cuts off of off of, uh, I don't know if it's Strutter or Deuce, but it's one of the first cuts. On, well, you know what? If there was only a way I could find out, I've got the album right here in my iTunes library. Let me see here. Here it is. Kiss. The first cut. Oh, it's Strutter. Deuce is, I think Deuce is the first cut on the second side. So close enough. All right. Uh, the last question. CJ Newman wants to know if I'm aware that I dropped the S-bomb on Wednesday towards the end of the show by accident. I, I don't think you mean PFTPM because I say shit on here whenever I want. I don't think I dropped it on PFT live. Nobody has said anything to me like someone from production control room management would have said, Hey, do you know you said shit on the air? So I don't think I did. And now, now here's the thing. I, uh, I, I don't want to ask, <laughs> I don't want to start asking any questions because I don't want anybody to go back and realize, Hey, you know what? You dumbass, You said shit on an FCC regulated radio broadcast. All right, that's it. Have a great weekend. We'll do a PFTPM podcast Monday to take a look back at week nine, plus any news that may unfold like this past Monday when it was very eventful. All weekend long, profootballtalk.com. I don't think there's any other outlet out there that will give you what you want all weekend long, not what we think you want or what we think you should want, what you want. The news, the transactions, the injury updates, and everything necessary to get you ready for week nine and have you equipped to enjoy the action the best way that you can. Enjoy the games, and we'll talk again next week. 
You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.